Chapter Three of Darnley by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Elusive Dreams in Mystic Forms Expressed. Blackmore. That which is out of the common course of nature and for which we can see neither cause nor object requires, of course, a much greater body of evidence to render it historically credible than is necessary to authenticate any event within the ordinary operation of visible agents were it not so the many extraordinary tales respecting the astrologers and even the magicians of the middle ages would now rest as recorded truth instead of idle fiction being supported by much more witness than we have to prove many received facts of greater importance till the last century the existence of what is called the second sight amongst the scots was not doubted even in the present day it is not disproved and we can hardly wonder at our ancestors having given credence to the more ancient more probable more reasonable superstition of the fates of men being influenced by the stars or at their believing that the learned and wise could see into futurity when many in this more enlightened age imagine that some of the rude and illiterate possess the same faculty it is not however my object here to defend long-gone superstitions or to show that the predictions of the astrologers were ever really verified except by those extraordinary coincidences for which we cannot account and some of which every man must have observed in the course of his own life that they were so verified on several occasions is nevertheless beyond doubt for it is not the case that in the most striking instances of this kind as many writers have asserted the prediction if it may be so called was fabricated after its fulfilment on the contrary any one who chooses to investigate may convince himself that the prophecy was in many instances enounced and is still to be found recorded by contemporary writers before its accomplishment took place as examples might be cited the prognostication made by an astrologer to henry the second of france that he should be slain in single combat a thing so unlikely that it became the jest of his whole court but which was afterwards singularly verified by his being accidentally killed at a tournament by montgomery captain of the scottish guards also the prediction by which the famous or rather infamous catherine de medici was warned that saint-germain would be the place of her death the queen fully convinced of its truth never from that moment set foot in town or palace which bore the fatal name but in her last moments her confessor being absent the priest was called to her assistance by mere accident whose name was saint-germain and actually held her in his arm during the dying struggle the two instances took place about fifty years after the period to which this history refers and may serve to show how strongly rooted in the minds of the higher classes was this sort of superstition when even the revival of letters and the diffusion of mental light for very long did not seem at all to affect them the habits and manners of the astrologers however underwent great changes and it is perhaps at the particular epoch of which we are now writing namely the reigns of henry the eighth of england and francis i of france that this singular race of beings was in its highest prosperity before that time they had in general affected strange and retired habits and whether as magicians or merely astrologers were both feared and avoided 
Some exceptions, however, must be made to this, as instances are on record where, even in years long before, such studies were pursued by persons of the highest class, and won them both love and admiration. The most brilliant example of which was in the person of Tiffaine Raguenel, wife of the famous Constable du Guesclin, whose counsel so much guided her husband through his splendid career. The magicians and astrologers, however, who were scattered through Europe towards the end of the 15th century and the beginning of that which succeeded, though few in number from many circumstances, bore a much higher rank in the opinion of the world than any who had preceded them. This must be attributed to their being in general persons of some station in society, of profound erudition, of courtly and polished manners, and also to their making but little pretension on the score of their supposed powers, and never any display thereof, except they were earnestly solicited to do so. There was likewise always to be observed in them a degree of eccentricity, if a habitual difference from their fellow-beings might be so called, which, being singular, but not obtrusive, gave them an interest in the eyes of the higher, and a dignity in the estimation of the lower, classes, as a sort of beings separated by distinct knowledge and feeling from the rest of mankind. In those ages a thousand branches of useful knowledge lay hid, like diamonds in an undiscovered mine, and many minds, of extraordinary keenness and activity, wanting legitimate objects of research, after diving deep in ancient lore, and exhausting all the treasures of antiquity, still unsated, devoted themselves to those dark and mysterious sciences that gratified their imagination with all the wild and the sublime, and gained for them a reverence amongst their fellow-creatures approaching even to awe. As we have said before, whatever was the reality of their powers, or however they contrived to deceive themselves, as well as others, they certainly received not only the respect of the weak and vulgar, but if they used their general abilities for the benefit of mankind, they were sure to meet with the admiration and the friendship of the great, the noble and the wise. Thus the famous Earl of Surrey, the poet, the courtier, the most accomplished gentleman and bravest cavalier of that very age, is known to have lived on terms of intimacy with Cornelius Agrippa, the celebrated Italian sorcerer, to whose renown the fame of Sir Caesar of England is hardly second, though early sorrows of the most acute kind had given a much higher degree of wildness and eccentricity to the character of the extraordinary old man of whom we speak than the accomplished Italian ever suffered to appear. In many circumstances there was still a great degree of similarity between them. Both were deeply versed in classical literature, and were endowed with every elegant attainment, and both possessed that wild and vivid imagination which taught them to combine in one strange and heterogeneous system the pure doctrines of Christianity, the theories of the pagan philosophers, and the strange, mysterious notions of the dark sciences they pursued. Amongst the many fancies derived from the Greeks, it seemed certain that both Sir Caesar and Cornelius Agrippa received, as an undoubted fact, the Pythagorean doctrine of the transmission of the souls through the various human bodies for a long period of existence, the spirit retaining, more or less, in different men, the recollection of events which had occurred to them at other periods of being. One striking difference, however, existed between these two celebrated men. Cornelius Agrippa was all mildness, gentleness, and suavity, while Sir Caesar, 
irritated by the memory of much sorrow, was wild, vehement, and impetuous. Ever striving to do good, it is true, but hasty and impatient under contradiction. The same sort of mental excitement hurried him on to move from land to land and place to place, without seeming ever to pause for any length of time, and as he stood not upon the ceremony of introduction, but made himself known to whomsoever the fancy of the moment might lead him, he was celebrated in almost every part of the world. So much as we have said seemed necessary, in order to give our readers some insight into the character of the extraordinary man whose history is strongly interwoven with the web of the present narrative, and to prevent it being supposed that he was an imaginary being devised for the nonce. But we shall now proceed with him in his proper person. "'Let us reason,' said Sir Caesar, breaking form abruptly, after he had ridden on with the young knight some way in silence. "'Let us reason of nature and philosophy, of things that are and things that may be, for I would fain expel from my brain a crowd of sad thoughts and dark imaginings that haunt the caverns of memory.' "'I should prove but a slow reasoner,' replied the young knight, when compared with one whose mind, if report speak truth, has long explored the deepest paths of science, and discovered the full wealth of nature. "'Nay, nay, my friend,' answered the old man, "'something I have studied, it is true, but nature's full wealth, who shall ever discover? Look through the boundless universe, and you shall find that there were life of man extended a thousandfold, and all his senses refined to the most exquisite perfection, and had his mind infinite faculty to comprehend, yet the portion he could truly know would be to the great whole as one grain of sand, to the vast foundation of the sea. As it is, man not only contemplates, but few of nature's works, but also sees a little part of each. Thus, when he speaks of life, he means but that which inspires animals, and never dreams that everything has life. And yet it is so. Is it not reasonable to suppose that everything that moves, feels? And we cannot but conclude that everything that feels has life. The Indian tree that raises its branches when any living creature approaches must feel, must have sensation. The lodestone that flies to its fellow must know, must perceive that that fellow is near. Motion is life, and if viewed near, everything would be found to have motion, to have life, to have sensation. Sir Osborne smiled. Then do you suppose, demanded he, that all vegetables and plants feel? nay more much more answered the old man i doubt not that everything in nature feels in its degree from the rude stone that the mason cuts to man the most sensitive of substantial beings it is a bold doctrine said the young knight who willing to gain what insight he could into his companion's character pressed him for a still further exposition of his opinions though at the same time he himself felt not a little carried away by the energy of manner and rich modulation of tone with which the old man communicated his singular ideas. It is a bold doctrine, and would seem to animate the whole of nature. Could it be proved, the world would acquire a glow of life, an activity of existence, where it now appears cold and silent. The whole of nature is animated, replied Sir Caesar. Life combined with matter is but a thousandth part of of life existent the world teems with spirits the very air is thick with them they dance in the sunshine they ride upon the beams of the stars they float about in the melodies of music they nestle in the cups of the flowers 
and i am forced to believe that never a flower fades or a beam passes away without some being mourning the brief date of loveliness on earth doubt not for this is true and though no one can prove that matter is sensitive yet it can be proved that such spirits do exist and that they may be compelled to clothe themselves with a visible form it can be proved i say and i have proved it i have heard the same reported of you replied sir osborne when you with the renowned cornelius agrippa called up a spirit to ascertain what would be the issue of the battle of ravenna was it not so speak not of it cried the old man speak not of it in that battle fell the bright the gallant the amiable nemus though warmed by counsel by prophecy and by portent he would venture his life on that fatal battle and fell speak not of it but now to you and yours whither go you my first care replied sir osborne must be to seek my father at whose wish i have now returned to england to you who know far more of me and mine than i ever dreamed that mortal here had heard i need not say where my father dwells as he spoke sir osborne drew up his horse following the example of his companion whose palfrey had stopped at a point where the road separating into two branches gave the traveller the option of proceeding either towards canterbury or dover as his business or pleasure might impel at the same time the young knight fixed his eye upon the other's face as if to ascertain what was passing in his mind seeking probably thence to learn how far the old man's knowledge really extended in respect to himself and his concerns it is a long journey said sir caesar thoughtfully and twill take you near three weeks to travel thither and back much may be lost or won in three weeks you must not go hie on to dover and thence to london wait there till i give you further news and be sure that my news shall be of some avail it cannot be answered sir osborne maurice before i take any step whatever i must see my father and though i doubt not that your advice be good and your knowledge more than natural i cannot quit my road nor wait in any place till i have done the journey to which duty and affection call me your own will then be your guide though it be a bad one answered sir caesar but mark i tell you if you pursue the road you are on you will meet with danger and will lose opportunity my words are not wont to fall idly whatever danger may occur replied sir osborne my road lies towards london and it shall not be easy to impede me on my way ho oh, so headstrong cried the old knight in god's name then on my palfrey goes too slow for your young blood put spurs to your steed stir and get quick into the perils from which you will need my hand to help you out spur spur sir knight and good speed attend you by your leave then replied sir osborne taking the old man at his word and giving his horse the spur sir caesar i thank you for your kindness we shall meet again when i hope to thank you better till then farewell 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 muttered the old knight just the same as ever if i remember right he was killed in the first punic war for not taking the advice of valerius the soothsayer and though now his soul has passed through fifty different bodies he is just as headstrong as ever and with these sage reflections sir caesar pursued his way leaving him however to his own meditations we must now for some time follow the track of sir osborne maurice 
whose horse bore him quickly along that same little tortuous road in the midst of which we first encountered him to say sooth some speed was necessary for whatever might be the cause that induced the young knight to linger at the cottage of old richard hartley and whatever might have been the ideas that had occupied him during so long a reverie he had wasted no small portion of the day between listening to the garrulity of the old man thinking over the circumstances which that garrulity called up to memory and conversing with the singular being from whom he had just departed and yet within a mile of the spot where he had left the astrologer sir osborne drew his bridle and standing in the stirrup looked round him on both sides over the high bank of earth which in that place flanked the road on either side after gazing round for a moment and marking every trifling object with an attention which was far more than the scenery merited from any apparent worth or picturesque beauty he turned his horse into a small bridle path and riding on for about a mile came in front of a mansion which even in that day bore many a mark of venerable antiquity a small eminence at about five hundred yards distance from it gave him a full view of the building as it rose upon another slight elevation somewhat higher than that on which he stood through the trees which filled up the immediate space was seen gliding a small river meandering among the copses now shone glittering in the sun now hid itself in the shades with that soothing variety gay yet tranquil placid but not insipid which is the peculiar characteristic of the course of an english stream the wind had fallen the clouds had dispersed and the evening sun was shining out as if seducing the early buds to come forth and yield themselves to his treacherous smile and all the choir of nature was hymning its song of joy and hope in the prospect of delightful summer above the branches which were yet scarcely green with their first downy promise of the spring was seen rising high the dark octagon keep of chillam castle it was a building of the old irregular norman construction and the architect who probably had forgot that a staircase was requisite till he had completed the tower had remedied the defect by throwing out from the east side a sort of square buttress which contained the means of ascending to the various stories of which it was composed on the west side of the keep appeared a long mass of building of a still more ancient date surrounded by strong stone walls overgrown with ivy forming a broken but picturesque line of architecture stretching just above the tops of the trees and considerably lower than the tower while a small detached turret was seen here and there completing the castellated appearance of the whole sir osborne paused and gazed at it for five or ten minutes in silence while a variety of very opposite expressions took possession of his countenance now it seemed that the calm beauty of the scene filled him with thoughts of tranquillity and delight now that the view recalled some poignant sorrow for something very bright rose and glistened in his eye at last his brow knit into a frown and anger seemed predominant as grasping the pommel of his sword with his left hand he shook his clenched fist towards the antique battlements of the castle and then as if ashamed of such vehemence of passion he turned his horse and galloped back on the road he came the moment after he had again entered upon the road to canterbury a sudden change took place in the pace of his horse and perceiving that he had cast a shoe the young knight was forced although the sun was now getting far west to slacken his pace 
for the lady who walked over the burning ploughshares would have found it a different story had she tried to gallop over that road without shoes proceeding therefore but slowly it was nearly dark when he reached the little village of northbourne where riding up to the smithy he called loudly for the farrier no farrier however made his appearance all was silent and as black as his trade and the only answer which osborne could procure was at length elicited from one of a score of boys who with open eyes and gaping mouths stood round listening unmoved for a quarter of an hour while the knight adjured the blacksmith to come forth and show himself can i have my horse shod here or not little varlet cried he at length to one of the most incorrigible starers ye moy if you loike answered the boy with that air of impenetrable stupidity which an english peasant boy can sometimes get up when he is half frightened and half sullen he means you moy if you can answered another urchin with somewhat of a more intellectual face for jenkin thumpkin is up at the hostel shooing the merchant's beast and dame winnie his wife is gone to hold the lantern <laughs> roared his companions to whose mind dame winnie holding the lantern was a very good joke <laughs> wherever jenkin thumpkin is there goes dame winnie to hold the lantern <laughs> but how far is it to the inn my good boy demanded sir osborne oh it's for half an hour up the road you see replied the boy who still chuckled at his own joke and wanted fain to repeat it but are you sure the blacksmith is there demanded sir osborne ay ay replied the boy as sure as eggs are bacon and he's not coming back again so if you go straight up along you'll meet jenkin coming and dame winnie holding the lantern <laughs> End of chapter three